At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey Blenders, it's Sean and I'm here to introduce a bonus episode with a really special director. Oliver Stone is joining the show this week to talk about JFK. This is one of those rare opportunities that we get uh, because of a home video opportunity. And this is the 30th anniversary uh, of JFK, the movie that Oliver Stone made that uh, starred Kevin Costner and explored the um, the controversies behind the JFK assassination uh, and the case that Jim Garrison brought up to get, uh, to get into some more information about uh, the Warren Commission and the Zapruder film and all the things that made him pretty interested in the fact that uh, a lot of the facts he thought were being overlooked in the investigation. But it's it's a, a film that Oliver Stone, you can tell throughout the course of this interview, is still really, really passionate about uh, and specifically about how it was received. This was a Best Picture nominee and uh, he earned a Best Director nomination for it as well too. Uh, and it contended against some really heavy hitters losing to uh, Silence of the Lambs, obviously at the Oscars. So a, a, a well-received film Film, in our opinion, and one that we, uh, that I personally go back to and check often, um, as I mentioned in the interview, as you're going to hear, this is a seven course meal of a movie. Uh, there's so much information. I feel like every time I go back to it, uh, I pick up more uh, about not just the investigation, but really uh, a respect of Oliver Stone as a filmmaker and the way that he's able to put uh, the sheer amount of information that's in a movie like JFK into the edit, which is something that he discusses uh, in the in the interview that you're about to hear. Uh, we talk a lot about how much fun it is to get a director um, for a very specific project that we admire, and we don't have to really sneak in questions about something like JFK, where at the end of an interview, we might be like, hey, it's 30 years of JFK. Uh, what do you remember about working on this? We were able to really take a deep dive into his filmmaking process, uh, being on the ground in Dallas to shoot at very specific locations. This incredible cast that he put together uh, for the benefit of the movie. I love the way that he talks about uh, working with a lot of these character actors that he admired. And of course, just everything that he got out of Kevin Costner for this outstanding, outstanding performance. So um, it's a great, great opportunity for you guys to maybe revisit JFK, catch up with it in this director's cut version, and maybe get ready for a longer cut, as he'll talk about. Um, but without further ado, it's the Real Blind Interview with Oliver Stone on behalf of JFK. Um, Mr. Stone, we are a filmmaker-driven podcast. We love to get into the the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts, so please feel free to 
to get as geeky and technical as you can, but I want to start with a bigger picture type question and just sort of ask, uh, having revisited this director's cut, it is an exquisite sort of seven course meal of information. Uh, and every time I go back to it, I feel like I learn uh, even more than I knew going into it. But I wanted to know 30 years later, if the movie triggered the the amount of conversation and even the types of conversations that you were hoping that it would when you went into the production on it. Beyond what I was hoping, I went, I just, I didn't realize there was such interest in the case. It was really buried in the memory. It was, it was sort of a, a thing that was, it just broke. I mean, uh, as you know, the film, I didn't, I thought it would be my last film. You know, it was three hours and 15 minutes. It was very risky. And maybe, you know, too much talk and too much, too much Sherlock Holmes stuff. I, I, you know, I figured, you know, this is maybe the, the film, but at least I, I was happy with the film and that was what mattered. So I really bulldozed it through. I had some influence with Warner Brothers and I know that they were, wanted to get it out for Christmas. So that was a very good position. When you, time is running out, you can always say, well, if you want me to go back and make changes, I'm, it's gonna, we're not going to make Christmas. So I kind of used, uh, I very much used that uh, strategy. Huh. You know, Mr. Stone, I, I've always been interested in asking this because I, I'm, I'm a big Robert Richardson fan. I think he's one of the greatest DPs in the history of cinema. And the way you go back and forth between different film stocks and different uh, like 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, 8 millimeter. There's so many different film stocks and like archival footage you're using throughout the film. Uh, how did what were the conversations like with, with Robert Richardson about what film stock to use when? Like, how did you figure that out? How did you guys have the discussion? Listen, it was very natural. It was uh, instinctive. Bob and I had by this time made four or five films together. So we yeah. had reached a level of intuition. And it's not like on the page we said this is going to be, yeah, we sometimes we, we decided that it was clearly newsreel type footage or we wanted to go to six to eight millimeter, eight millimeter. And, and uh, but, you know, I, I would just walk over to Bob and say, let's do this in 16 or let's do this in <laughs> Super 35. And he was, you know, he'd come back, he said, let's try this. It was just that kind of a, we were on a roll. You know, we'd done The Doors and we had done Born on the Fourth of July, which is a very big, complicated film. So we had confidence. And we also done, I have to say, Salvador and Platoon. Salvador was a nightmare to make. We had no money. So <laughs> during that film, we bonded in a sense that very deeply. So we, we'd seen everything. But after Salvador, we thought we'd seen everything. And <laughs> we were ready to take on bigger, bigger, bigger responsibilities. Wow. Well, to that end, when you're putting together a film like this and you have to decide that you're going to break up um, a lengthy monologue or a, a large chunk of exposition. And, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of it in this film with um, either archival footage or a recreation. When do you decide when is the right moment to put in a recreation? And could you talk a little bit about setting your recreations to match your archival footage? It's remarkable how often it does it in JFK. We had, we tried everything. I mean, the editing is a key, you know, because obviously this is after the film is shot. Mm -hmm. And uh, I supervised the editors. There were three, three first, there were three editors and one major assistant who really became a fourth editor. And we were fighting time. So I would go from room to room and supervise the cut. One of the most interesting things that happened is that the Donald Sutherland stuff, which is now in the middle of the film, was split in two in the middle and it was at the end as a wrap up. Oh, wow. And, oh, wow. It just didn't work. And that was a big adjustment. We had to, we had to go back and recut that 
and put in all of the, I wanted everything in the middle because that ups the ante completely. And what is Costner going to do? He's overwhelmed by all this information. And the truth was that Garrison was overwhelmed. It, he was he realized that he was up against a covert military. He was up, up against a covert a covert operation. And that's the hardest thing to prove in court. Right. I couldn't yeah, imagine the film not ending with the courtroom. I'm sorry. I, that's stunning. You know, hey, we didn't. We, we, I think it was unfair with some of the criticism because we showed it as it came down. He was he, he was found innocent of Clay Shaw and he was released. And it, it uh, Costner walked out very disappointed. Of course, several of his witnesses had died. And, uh, and David Ferry and uh, Guy Bannister's his case did fall apart. But he kept going because he felt like this was a and he says it in the film. This is a way to catch if I can keep going. There are going to be shreds like the old man in the sea when the fish the fish comes in. You know, you still have some shreds. And frankly, that's the only public prosecution. As a result of Garrison's trial, we learned a lot right. about the autopsy at the beginning. About and we, he he unearthed he unearthed the Zapruder film, and he showed it to the jury. So uh, Jim uh, is much maligned, and I think he's a very serious man. And I think he was uh, I can't tell you how he was he was destroyed in the press. You know, Mr. Stone, I've always found this really interesting. Cause I, I, I'm in D.C. Uh, that's where I that's where, and, and Sean's in, uh, in Charlotte, but I'm in D.C. And I wanted to ask about your memories in terms of like the film coming out, the Congress and that aspect of it and kind of what it did to change aspects of people's access to certain things. Like, do you is it true that you showed the film to Congress in 91? Do, do I have that right? No, there was, I don't think we ever had a screening for all of the Congress. That'd be gigantic. Huh. I'm sure we showed it in Washington. It's various yeah. screening rooms. I don't remember exactly, but all this came about after the film came out. So yeah. we've gone through so much abuse and also praise. I have to be honest, we had a lot of praise. So it was very controversial and people were going to the film, which surprised me. I didn't expect this. Uh, we made quite a bit of money domestically and foreign. It was all over the world. Mm, wow. And people wanted to see it. So, when I testified, I was my first time. Of course, it's nerve wracking, but it was a simple request. It was thrown in at the last second by our PR people. They said, you know, let's get the files open. Let's get the files open, which is a good idea. It's a hook. To, yeah. It's a hook, you know, open the files. What the hell is so secret about it that you have to sit on until 2029? Mm -hmm. It was the, uh, and the House Select Assassinations Committee in 77, 79 had classified much of their stuff so it was impossible to get to unless we opened it so we were the essentially the third official investigation although i'd say that congress wow. didn't put much energy into the bill the, the bill allowed them to declassify what they wanted but the cia secret service i mean they don't they didn't cooperate they didn't cooperate and they made it it's very hard they stonewalled the these academics who were not very vicious and tough, like you have to be. It, it, but it was a third investigation. And, and this is interesting because the press never reported what was being discovered, right? A lot of files were, you know, 60,000 files were uncovered. And it's a lot of detail. It's all detail. You, in a case, in a murder case, you have to go to detail. Mm -hmm. It's like Sherlock Holmes always says that, you know, look at the details of the magnifying glass. And this whole community of researchers that we have in America, it's amazing what they've done. They, without, a, you know, without making a profit to it, they just wanted to solve this case. They, 
they 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 went into all the details of every frame. It's um, the guy who wrote the script, Jim D. Eugenio, is is one of those guys. He has an incredible memory. He doesn't forget. He re- he reads a document. He remembers it. I I, mean, I can't. <laughs> so they put together a very good, and they took this all this material and they analyzed and analyzed it, and we came up. This film is the result of that. It's taking wow. some of that material and making it clear as a legacy piece that this is what happened. And uh, there's also a four-hour version too, which is coming out in February. Oh my gosh! Oh, oh wow! Those people who want to follow up on it, uh, we take it very seriously. And but. Uh, there's no, it doesn't register on the national media at all. They don't yeah. have any responsibility. And they, in my mind, they were complicit from the beginning with this thing. Complicit. They just went along or lazy. They didn't want to, they didn't want to bother with it. It was too scary a story. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly, and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Mr. Stone, I've always found you to be an incredible filmmaker for two main reasons. One, you t- you make entertaining films, but at the same time, I learned so much watching your films. And uh, one of the beauties of you as a filmmaker is when I watch your work, I can feel the passion of what you're trying to do through the work because it's important what you're trying to tell people. And I wanted to ask you as a director, like in your mind, balancing that, the idea of like, okay, I, we need to entertain an audience, but at the same time, I'm very passionate about the material and I want this to get across. So how do you, I'm sure it's a probably a balancing act you've probably been trying to figure out for years, but how do you d- decide on that and balance? I don't think there's a contradiction. I think that if you know the material and you find it exciting to you, it'll be exciting to others because I have an ability to, to transmute, to alkalize uh, alchemy <laughs> you know you make something it, it it works if you if you're genuine and and passionate and i think that's true for every no matter what film you do so uh it's a nice uh, conjunction when the audience and you come together very rarely yeah. very rarely does it happen i mean passion passion of course is a can, is can lead you the wrong way i didn't want to i don't want to be feverishly passionate 
about something that could be wrong. So I had a lot of people around me who were in the research community. I had good advisors. I had people come in. I, I would talk to a lot of people as I was making the film. Didn't want to make a fool of myself. And uh, not, you know, things with, we've learned more since 1991, but that film essentially holds. Yeah, no, it really does. Um, I'm also stunned going back to revisit it uh, of the sheer amount of amazing actors that you had lined up for this one. Yeah. And I mean, like, you'll get Walter Matthau for, you know, a scene, essentially. Um, so can you talk about the casting process Were people lined up at the door to contribute to this one with you? Are there certain people that you wanted to get that you maybe didn't get? At the time, I think, first of all, Warner Brothers would, uh, wanted to make the film with me. They liked me. And I sold it to them as a murder story that would put a lot of tension, tension, you know, investigatory that sort of along the lines of the thriller films in the 70s. They wanted a star because the, the budget was, was bigger than, it was 40 million plus 42 million. Mm. Costner was their ace in the hole. He had just done Robin Hood for them. Mm, yeah. He was their ace in the hole. So Harrison Ford turned it down and I, uh, and, Mel Gibson turned, I don't know if Mel Gibson turned it down, but anyway, we ended up going to Kevin and he, the, uh, his, he was, uh, you know, scared of it a bit. His wife played a key role here at that time. She played a key role and Mike Ovitz at CAA played a key role in bringing him into the, into the film. The more he read, the more he researched, the more involved he got. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the other thing that was true about this film is that, I got the star, but uh, in other words, I could. They, they didn't care about who I cast in the smaller roles, but I cared because if you think about how complicated the film is, uh, yeah. well, you, you want to have a face like Jack Lemmon or Walter Matthau or John Candy or Kevin Bacon, somebody who can make an impact in, in a few moments so that you remember the link, because a lot of this evidence is, is tricky. So you remember, oh, that's the guy who, that's the guy, that's the woman who, so I tried to make it so it would be visually memorable. Oh, wow. I so, couldn't uh, believe uh, looking at, oh, I'm sorry, Kevin. I couldn't believe that Costner didn't get an Oscar nomination. Like I was st looking back over the, the sheer number of nominations that the film got. I was like, well, clearly he got in there. And when he wasn't there, I was blown away. I was blown away. <laughs> no, there was, you know, there's a lot of old guard in Hollywood. And there was, there was a, certainly a strong negative reaction, too. Mm. Yeah, Mr. Stone, you mentioned Harrison Ford passing on the film, and like you, you think about like history and like movies and like and like who would have been in what role, and it is interesting to go down that rabbit hole. But obviously, whatever we end up with is what we know. Um, but I was just curious, like in terms of Harrison Ford, did, like like when when he passes on a movie, like do you meet with him first? Are you guys working together for a bit of time? Like, how, what was that? What was that process with Harrison like? No, I met with him. Uh, I met with him. We talked about this the film. I, he read the script and he passed. It's, uh, it's, I don't think it was like the script. It was like he was, didn't want to get involved in, in the sense of, oh. I think he sensed that it was a hot potato. Mm. Gotcha, that's, gotcha. My, that's my, but you never know. Yeah, um, that's interesting. This film uh, is, I believe, the second of three collaborations that you've done with um, John Williams. And I was curious because he's, you know, largely considered Spielberg's guy and Spielberg approaches history in a different way. When do you realize that that the project you have is is what John it requires, what John Williams can bring? John Williams is John Williams. Beyond, <laughs> beyond Spielberg, he is a he is a modern maestro and he's done so much. I mean, he's an institution. Uh, 
And he loved Kennedy. I sensed that right away. In yeah. fact, it's interesting to note that he wrote the score, the first draft of the score, off the script. In fact, he may have started it before he even saw the script because he, when uh, we went to him, he's, JFK meant something to him. And I think he was paying respect to him by writing the score with a profound score. Oh, that's wow, fantastic. That's incredible. You know, I, I was reading somewhere and, and I, I, you know, you never know what you're reading on the internet, if it's real or not, but I, I believe you shot some of these scenes in the, in, in the real locations that, that the events occurred. And I wanted to ask you about some of those specific locations that you sought out and what, and how you were able to kind of pull that off. And like, was there a particular location that was more tricky for you to be able to like execute? Oh yeah. It was Dealey Plaza was our opening. We went right to the, the horse's mouth. I mean, that's, very complicated technical stuff. And we shot the president, the act, the, stand, the actor who played him, we shot him at least 10, 20 times, you know, in various positions for angles. We had a lot of camera. And wow, in the middle of Dallas, which is not that big a city, I mean, you can hear the shots and, you, you, you know, it, uh, it reverberates through the canyons. And it was quite something to see a, a motorcade like, break into chaos and people got into it, man. It was, three, it was, I believe two to three weeks there. And I was exhausted because I was running from one end of Dilly Plaza to the other. It was, you know, we had so much to think about. It was really one of the most complicated layouts. And, but we got everything and, and we never went back. I don't think we could have gone back. We got permission barely, barely from the Dallas City <laughs> Council, I think by one vote. And uh, our location manager was on top of the board, you know, taking them out to dinner, trying to charm them. Uh, but I think the vote was three to two, something like that, to, to permit us to shoot there because they thought, you know, oh, I'd, I'd made more than the 4th of July. And I was okay, but they, they, I was controversial too, you know. I'd also made the, the Sixth Floor Museum, which is up there, is a, is, a, is a bit of a fraud, you know. It really is in the sense that, they, they sell you the story of Oswald shot it from this, this window on the sixth floor. So they wouldn't give us the sixth floor because that was where the museum was. We shot on the seventh floor, oh, which wow. is a little bit higher, but uh, it's good enough to get the sense of the direction. Can I ask you emotionally, like just like stepping back, you're making a movie and you're operating and everybody, you know, you and Bob, everybody's, you're in the middle of filming it. But as you are recreating that moment, emotionally just for you like like do you remember like what was going through your mind were you able to step back from it and go this is crazy that we're like recreating this in the exact spot it's, I mean, it must have been wild for you as a filmmaker it was it was a responsibility to uh, i didn't want to screw it up you know uh certainly you feel ghosts you know there's things like that but uh and on top of it, we had the Washington Post reporter, national security reporter, running around the set on day one, trying to get poison on us. And he was, he was writing an article without telling us. So, to, and they actually pissed on us. They had a big Sunday piece coming up right after that. And it was making fun of our film. And the guy was operating from an earlier draft. So it's, you know, it was, I, I had so much on my mind. I, I was really preoccupied it's so many details you know uh that's a it's good in a way because you 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 lose a sense of if you get involved in something you're not thinking about the oh jesus christ you know i'm, I'm breaking the i'm breaking the barrier here yeah 
Um, I, I would love to drill down a little bit more into the the Mr. X character, who's just a, a fascinating device that you gave yourself, uh, the ability to include a lot of that information. But um, but Sutherland's performance is just an absolute masterclass. How much time did you have with him to film? Uh, and and can you talk a little bit about, about prepping with him just to get all of that right? Just to make it clear, because some people are confused, you know, I, all that dialogue is very much based on what Fletcher Prouty told me. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force since World War II. He'd been a major. He was the focus officer providing hardware to the CIA, mm-hmm. their operations abroad uh, in Laos, not in Laos, in Tibet, Indonesia. He'd been involved in several you know, dirty, dirty ops. But he walked away from it all after this assassination because he felt that something, it had gone wrong. Everything had gone wrong. And he was in that period of his life when he was older and he was like giving us information about how the government does these ops. He was hated by them. I mean, there was so much discredit. It was like Jim Garrison. They tried to discredit him, but they couldn't because he had the goods. And all his details were very good. Mm-hmm. He knew Alan Dulles. He knew these people. You know, they they dealt with each other. He knew the feel, which is important for me. Mm-hmm. And I also got some other military intelligence guys, John Newman, who came. And there's a lot of there's a lot going into this movie. But uh, Donald is a brilliant man. He's I have to tell you, he's 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 a genius level in the sense that yeah. he absorbs very fast. Mm-hmm. I don't have to talk to him very much. That dialogue was heavy, and. I knew he was a, a good actor, but I was shocked at how he spit it out, man. And he knew the pace for himself because, you know, I talked to Marlon Brando about the role and I realized you know, that it would be ridiculous uh, to try to make a scene out of that much dialogue. It's about 15, 16 minutes of talking. He did it. He did it like on the money. And he, I don't think we did many retakes. He's very fast. He's very smart. It's yeah, because that character has to make it seem like it's completely second nature to them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it's ingrained in them. The whole nature of the movie, because up to there, it's a local story. It's New Orleans. Uh, Costner feels he's operating in the fishbowl, and kind of after he's with Sutherland, the whole thing becomes international and it changes the whole game. No, it really does. Terrific scene, Mr. Stone. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears just here for briefly because you know we are a film podcast and like. Your films have been so instrumental in my life in terms of shaping me uh, and my love of cinema. And the film that I always think about when I think of you in terms of just my childhood, it was Natural Born Killers because I remember, I know it sounds weird, but I would go to Blockbuster (laughs) every single day, every other day, and I would pass by the Natural Born Killers VHS um, sitting there. And I just remember that film and I I remember finally seeing it and being like blown away by it. And I know Tarantino wrote the story for it. Um, I wanted to ask you just, if you don't mind asking about that experience now, all these years later, what that film means to you now, like, cause that was the film that like kind of introduced me to your work at, at, at the age of 10. So. I think it's a very uh, maligned film and it's a one-off in the sense that when I went there and I did it, uh, I did it right after Heaven and Earth. Heaven and Earth is a classically shot film, beautiful, Vietnam. And then I went right into this mad, I was getting a divorce at the time, so perhaps that paid, played a role in, in the anger and the, and the cynicism of it. But uh, I was really down on the press. The media had pissed me off so much with the JFK case, and now here they were 
in this, I, I saw the luridness of the, what, what, what TV reporting was going to. You have to realize in that time, O.J. Simpson was the only thing they could talk about on the news, mm-hmm. the murder. Uh, and there were various other violent acts, but that's what they focused on to get the ratings. So the whole country seemed to be mad. We were driven by the need to see violence, which is a problem in America. It really is. And if you know, if you look at your just TV shows, I mean, it's just normal to have violence, to have some kind of uh, uh, good versus bad uh, resolution. It's, it's sad that we raise kids this way. And I was doing this as a throwing up in the face of all the stuff I saw on TV. And that's what it is. And it's a chaotic film. And I love it. I spent a lot of time in the editing room. It's about 3,000 images or something like that. It's a hell of a film. And the editors were great. Editors were oh, great. Love that movie. Thank you for answering that. And Bob shot it like crazy. We all were crazy at that point. Yeah, that was a really, it's a really interestingly well shot film. It's like, it's a, a chaotic is probably the best way to put it. I mean, it is absolutely insane. You know, it's, it's controlled chaos. We didn't yeah. control it. And then we went back and did Nixon, which is a completely different style, which I loved. Uh, very classical style, but using some of the madness from the natural born killers. Wow. It's, it's so kind of cool. what I, it's very much what I love about your filmography is right as people are trying to pigeonhole you into something, you go in a completely different direction. Yeah. <laughs> no, fuck them. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> to that I end, my water out. No, to that end. <laughs> the one thing in life I have a problem with is summing people up. They, I, I, they come in and they pigeonhole you. They say this, that. It's so boring. The thing about being a dramatist is being able to change identities and. Yeah. Slip, slip around things and become Richard Nixon or Jim Morrison or, you know, just have fun with it and become a, you go outside yourself in the year that you make that film. And I did. I, one, I beat Jim Morrison in one film and then I turned into Richard Nixon in the next. <laughs> you do. You, um, can, can I ask about the real fast? You said you, you're, you're Jim Morrison, then you turn into the other. Do you do you think of it like that? Like like you're that person telling the story kind of? I, I identify with the character. So when I did George oh. Bush, you know, the people say, why are you doing George Bush? You know, he, he they, they didn't understand that I have to get in his shoes. I have to empathize with him. It's not like I approve of what he did. I just... I want to understand what, how you can go to war like that and how you can believe this nonsense. And the same thing is true about Nixon. I mean, I, Nixon hurt our country in many ways. And, but I knew my father and I had that, and I wanted to get inside that character. So that's really what it's about, getting inside people. Um, knowing your fascination for controversial world leaders like this, are you workshopping a Trump project that we should brace for in a few years? I would watch that. Yeah, he doesn't interest me as much because he, I mean, I know I'm not going to do that. <laughs> good, good. Um, real quick, I just want to end on this, if you don't mind, because we're running out of time. Um, you, you said earlier that you thought that this might be your last movie, which is fascinating to me because it ended up becoming so beloved yeah. and was a Best Picture nominee. And so, you know you said basically your response to the people who you know want to pigeonhole you is fuck them this is a bit of a victory lap for you do you see it that way do you see the fact that the that the movie is still the topic of conversation 30 years later and has had that resonance do you feel that you succeeded that that it that it uh, went beyond what you ever dreamed possible for it? it it went beyond in the underground sense you know i mean there is a an audience for the film but the official in the official academies of whatever the establishment calls, it's not acceptable. So, you know, it's always that way. 
but I think America, America's got to grow up, uh, you know, and s- stop seeing, you know, they can't accept the idea of assassination of a president and that we did it, you know, that's, that they can't accept the idea that we're like the rest of the world, you know, we are. Uh, things that happen in France, Russia, Italy happen here too. And uh, there's no difference. We consider ourselves better than other people, which mm-hmm. I find the racist. Uh, I find that to be very arrogant quality uh, American corporation executives and war leaders have presidents. You know, we are we are the standard. Uh, I, so I'm trying to say, well, look at this. You know, you have problems. We have problems. So I. It's a message that's hard to put across at this t- in this day and age, especially after 2001 when uh, Bush hit the, the Patriot drums. Yeah, very true. Well, I'm thrilled that this movie is still part of the conversation. Uh, Oliver, yeah. I know that we're so excited that you were a guest on the show. We really appreciate you coming by. And um, we can't wait for everybody to check out the director's cut of this film. And, and the four-hour cut that you say is coming. That's amazing. Four-hour well, cut is coming. Excellent. We look Thank you, Mr. Stone. Thanks Thank for all the movies. Stone. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Bro. Take care. Bye-bye, guys. Naturally, we want to thank Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and Oliver Stone himself for coming on the show and being our very last show of 2021. We are wrapping up the year. Uh, we'll be back next week with a full-on episode. Uh, premium members, you're going to get an episode on Monday as normal. But for the rest of us, we're taking some time off of the holiday, and uh, we'll see you guys when we get back to it. Hopefully, we'll be doing our top tens of 2021 and maybe even doing a most anticipated show. Uh, We might have a couple of fun things coming for the 200th episode because it's a landmark for Real Blend. So happy holidays to you guys. Hope you all have a very happy new year. Thank you as always for supporting the show. Uh, We can't tell you how much we appreciate you guys checking us out every single week. Tell a friend about the show. Uh, If you're here on the YouTube channel, hit like and subscribe. Uh, You'll be able to get all of our new videos as soon as they drop. And we'll be heading into 2022 uh, guns a-blazing. We'll talk to you guys soon. Hope everything's well. Stay safe. Talk to you later. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.